The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Living in New Zealand, we're a bit insulated from just how big some of the world's biggest companies are. Amazon, Microsoft and Starbucks are bigger financial entities than some countries and the things the leaders in those organisations do shape how people live. And some Kiwis have climbed very high in those companies. If you think how central to life Wi-Fi and Starbucks became to so many people before mobile data was affordable and if you've ever been a tourist popping in to take advantage of it for example, you have a Kiwi to thank. And if you've ever used Alexa, Amazon's voice assistant, to order a product, chances are you have a Kiwi to thank for that. Actually, the same Kiwi for both. Lavina McMurchie started her career here, but after an MBA from Harvard, found success in the States, leading up important parts of Starbucks, Skype and Amazon before heading back home to Aotearoa last year to help lead up a big new investment fund at Movac. To talk the journey, what her hopes for New Zealand business are, and how people can make it in the world's biggest companies. Lavina joins us now. Tēnā Thanks for joining us. Tēnā Simon. Hey, so tell me about your start in New Zealand, because I'll bet it was different to a lot of the other people around the exec tables of these companies in the States. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it was. You know, I, 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 I describe it as like growing up as a, you know, a poor kid in South Auckland, you know, in the 70s, kind of Irish Maori background, um, you know, went to a decile one school, and like as I start telling that story, it really sounds like the story of deprivation, but it, it totally wasn't. Like I feel like I had a wonderful start in life because, you know, at that time in New Zealand, you know, I didn't want for anything. I had food on the table, I had a roof over my head, I had a good education, I had you know teachers that cared, I had a good health system kind of backing me up, and. You know, so I, I'm quite thankful for that, and I think it gave me a great start. And one of the things that I think I really got out of it is just like really learning to be a self-starter, and that sort of that basic capability of saying, "Hey, you know, things are laid out for you, but you have to go and get them if you want them." I mean, that turned out to be super, super helpful in business. And now, as I come back to New Zealand and look around, like at the governance circles, actually. There's a few other people who have kind of similar backgrounds. You know, Joan Withers went to the same Decile One high school that I went to. She's now the chair of um, Mercury Mm. and um, 
the warehouse and uh, Justine Smythe, who's chair of um, Spark and Breast Cancer Society. So I don't know, there must have been something in the water in sort of the 70s and 80s in South Auckland. Yes, that's so interesting. But something about New Zealand, if you do come from um, any school, is you can go to the same university as anyone from the wealthiest school, can't you? In a way yep. that isn't necessarily the case um, overseas. But was it was it a, a, a standard thing for people from your school to head to university, or were you one of the exceptions that got there? Well, to be fair, yeah, that it was more of, a, sort of an exceptional case. I think I started Form Three back in the day with 150 other girls, and I think five of us got UE. So, you know, it it wasn't easy. You know, again, it was possible, but it it certainly wasn't easy. And I distinctly remember kind of going to university, just starting out and thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to compete against all these grammar kids and these, you know, kids from Kings and what have you? Like, I'll, I'll never cope. And, you know, what I found was the opposite of that because, you know, the background I came from meant that I had to be very independent and quite driven when you got into that university environment where there wasn't a lot of structure or spoon feeding or someone chasing you with a stick, you know, to turn in the assignment, like that was just my zone, you know, and I, I did, did super, super well. So I think it was one of those situations where it was hard to get through. But if you got through, you, you were left with <clears throat> these really strong kind of skills that, would, that did, you know, set me up to sort of go, go kind of quite far. And education was a real key thing to your being able to uh, get access to those amazing companies in the States, wasn't it? Tell, tell me about how it was that you ended up um, in in the US at, at Harvard doing doing an MBA. Yeah, sure. Well, at the university, I studied statistics here in New Zealand. And, you know, if you were a great statistician at that time, pretty much that meant you were going to head to the US and do a PhD. But the academic year was off cycle, so I had kind of nine months to wait. And so I thought, wow, what will I do for the nine months? Why don't I go and get, you know, a job? (laughs) So I went to work in Auckland at Colmar Brunton Research, um, heading up their data science group. And I worked on some incredible projects, you know, at the age of, I don't know, mid-20s or something. Things like doing all of the consumer research for the launch of Tapapa, doing the consumer research for launching Zespri, which was very fun. Um, and even like launching the Colmar Brunton One Network News Poll, which is, you know, still around today. And once I got a taste of that, I thought, God, I love this. This is awesome. You know, I couldn't really imagine myself going back and kind of sitting in a dust. What, what I realised is I didn't really know a lot about business and that I did want to study it more formally. Um, and actually at the time, my um, professor of statistics, who's a fantastic you know, guy, Alistair Scott, you know, came to me and said, hey, why don't you consider the scholarship? Um, it would pay for you to go to Harvard, pay for all the tuition and all of your living expenses. And so he really de- you know, delivered it to me. I didn't know it existed. Um, and I applied and was you know, fortunate enough to, to win that scholarship. I think one Kiwi a year in, gen- in general gets to do that. Um, and so I sort of feel like all of my luck in life kind of came together at that, at that one point in time. Oh, that, that's so magic. And I love how you say you got excited by customer research. As it's a kind of magic, isn't it? The way that you see kind of um, uh, opinions kind of melding and then you're able to get kind of like a, a, a feel for what a wide group of people think and, and see how it changes over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think like that, that was important. So I think one of my lessons of business is 
being consumer driven and putting the customer right at the center is one of the most important things you can do to have sort of long-term success. And so I actually think that starting out in research was just a really good kind of internalization of the importance of customer needs and listening to the customer. And it teaches you a lot about yourself too if you run through a lot of research groups with ideas and you go in and you go, oh, you know, I've got these assumptions about what might work and then they'll die or they'll do really well or you'll just, you, just won't, you just won't know and it kind of um, it, it helps uh, feed so much more into what you do. Yeah, well, we like to think we're unique. I had a neighbour in America, you know, who was sort of very liberal, drove a Prius, Prius, you know, and wore, and wore you know, polo, black polo necks, and he, you know, thought he was, you know, special. And then you sort of think, well, actually, there's a whole segment of people. There's about 15 million of you in the US, but you know, let's let's not disabuse people of, of their sense of uniqueness. Let's give people that at least. <laughs> and so, doing the the Harvard MBA was that a similar experience to when you landed at Auckland University and saw that, you know, you, you had the same. Stuff as everyone else if you worked hard for it? Um, I, I don't think it was. Like, I think my experience at university, you know, particularly being, in, you know, again, in statistics as a woman, that was kind of uncommon, you know, was, was one of finding my own way and doing it alone. And going to Harvard, Harvard Business School is actually more like going back to high school. Like, there was this intense amount of kind of peer pressure of trying to follow the crowd. Um, and, and I'd say in a way that that was sort of the main benefit of it. You didn't really go to learn finance and accounting and technical skills. The real value of going and doing that MBA was that you re-benchmarked yourself against other really, really great people. And all these kind of like, you know, young people who were like masters of the universe and had these plans to take over the world. When you were immersed in that, it really did make you think, well, what am I going to do? Like, what am I capable of doing? And it made you kind of reset, you know, your sights to be higher. Um, so I, th- I think it was it was more the sort of peer pressure of, you know, changing how you viewed your own future based on the people that you were surrounded by. And you came out of there and went into a series of jobs and, you know, massive household uh, brands. And at the intersection of kind of technology and consumer um, desires, I guess. So t- tell me about a couple of these projects. So Starbucks leading the first big national rollout of Wi-Fi. And not to make it sound like, you know, everything was in black and white and, you know, uh, horse, and, horse and carts were around. <laughs> but, you, you know, like um, it, 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 it was a really big project, wasn't it, yeah. to connect people yeah. up in a world where mobile data was prohibitive. Yeah, and I have to say it's one of the things I feel most proud of in a way because – I think it just added a lot of, made the world a better place. You know, I look back on it now and still think that. And again, to like imagine what that was like, 2003, most people in America were connecting to the internet through dial-up, right? It was really slow. And there was the one or two, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots, you know, in cafes and airports. But each one of them you had to try and locate with a special little bit of locator software that you had to install. And then you just sign an account up and pay. And it was, it was a major hassle. And so, you know, when we looked at it, we said, look, wouldn't it be amazing if you could go into any Starbucks in the world and there'd be the super fast, high-speed broadband for you, broadband for you to connect, and it would be completely free. I mean, it was a really, really big idea. 
And by the way, it was an expensive idea. I mean, plugging those T1 connections into 4,000 stores, I mean, I think it was something like 400 US a month per store. And so we had to be kind of super creative around the business model um, of funding that. And we partnered with a T-Mobile, you know, cell phone provider in the US. And the idea is we'd put those T1s in and a third of the bandwidth would go to our customers to use for free. A third of it would go back to T-Mobile because they wanted to do some backhaul of their, their cell phone traffic through them. And then a third of it would go to Starbucks to improve our own store operations because we were using dial-up to do credit card processing. So imagine you know, the deprivation of going into a Starbucks and having to wait 10 minutes for your coffee because the person in front of you, you know, pulls out a credit card. So it was quite transformative, not only to the consumer, but actually to Starbucks's store operations. And it wasn't easy, honestly, to get it through. Um, at the time, a lot of kind of the Starbucks partners really felt like, you know, does that belong in the store? And so we had to do a lot of kind of internal, you know, um, navel gazing in a way to say, is, is that what we want to be? Is, is this technology a core part of our store experience? And when we thought hard about that, what we saw is, you know, Starbucks isn't just a coffee shop, right? It's a place you go and have meetings. It's a place you go and, you know, work between meetings. And that people were already doing that in the store. So when we when we realized that, we really saw the service as a way of kind of better enabling people to have that, 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 that experience they were already getting from Starbucks. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fun that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. You can pay what you want, but for just $8 a month, you'll receive a package that includes our first book. Check it out through the spin-off. Hi, this is Toby Manhire busting into your podcast to say please come and listen to our podcast too our podcast is gone by lunchtime i'm the host and together with ben thomas and annabelle lee mather we chew over the political issues of the day it's gone by lunchtime come and check us out spinoff.co.nz gone by lunchtime and it's on all the podcast platforms you know you know where to find them yeah and it's really embedded it in the culture because anyone who has traveled uh, around the place um over the last kind of 15 years would know that, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, you can pop into any McDonald's to use the loo, you know, you can <laughs> pop into any Starbucks anywhere you go and find some Wi-Fi and yeah, yeah, it's it's a, and, and, and work between meetings as you say. And tell tell me about um tell me about the Microsoft journey as well, as um you you were involved with with Skype, is that right? Yeah, well, I spent ten years there, so I did a lot of different things across that time. But but generally, I was there during a time, you know, of you know Windows. I think having reached its you know the, the sort of peak, um, and that was sort of a good and a bad thing, right? I always like to say, oh, I had a billion dollar P and L, which is quite true. But when you have a billion dollar P and L, you know, often you know, your priorities change, right? A lot of your energy is put around how do I keep that billion dollar p and You know, you hit the point of, you know, innovator's dilemma. And I think that's where we were with Windows, with Skype, and a lot of the other consumer services like MSN, like Windows Messenger. Um, and and so the, the problem was 
for a Windows that on one hand there was the kind of growth of Linux and piracy and a lot of operating systems going free. And on the other side, you kind of had Apple really growing with that sort of super premium, premium experience. And so we spent a lot of time saying, how do we kind of recreate or change the, the way we monetize Windows? And a lot of my time, both with Skype and Windows, was then spent on, can we move more towards an ad funding model? So maybe this is not as great at Starbucks. Like I'm the lady that put ads into Skype and, you know, Outlook. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was to try and transform, you know, that business model. And then I think my lesson out of that was, you know, a really important one for anyone in a technology company, which is, you know, you've got to not lose sight of your customer and your consumer and their needs. And you've got to make sure that you're balancing your investment and innovating around your core product, not just in how do you meet, meet the quarter and how do you hold on to the revenue. And I think that's, you know, that's a critical lesson because any tech company is going to go through different cycles of the early days where it's kind of hard to get any customers, then the middle period where you're growing like crazy. And then that point where you move into maturity and you have to think about how do I sustain myself, you know, and really stay relevant. And what an amazing case study in it, as Hotmail and MSN Messenger couldn't have been more ubiquitous. And Windows yeah. was, you know, the, was the, yeah. the absolute definition of ubiquity, <laughs> yeah. you know. And to have gone from a place with, um, you know, everyone, what could be more personal than an email address? It's where you have your family photos. It's where you've got your whole address book and stuff. And the way that the whole world kind of moved from Hotmail to other services or to Outlook and kind of went out of there. What an amazing product because you, you came in after kind of the maturity point of it. Hey, so yeah, yeah. what an interesting project to have to manage manage through that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and we we tried, you know, many different things. Like, you know, I think we had Hotmail addresses and that had an old, you know, crusty brand at a time where, you know, people thought that sort of Gmail, having Gmail on your resume was sort of more cool. You know, so we, we rebranded it to Outlook.com. We added a lot of features that actually were pretty equivalent, you know, to, to, to Gmail. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you stand for something in the consumer's mind, when you have a strong reputation for being something, like Skype was also in this position, you know, sometimes it's hard to move that brand to stand for something new, even if you are investing, you know, in, into innovation. And so that's sort of an important lesson. I mean, in a, when you're growing, having a strong brand is a moat, but then as you mature, having a strong, strong brand sometimes is, you know, a weight around your neck. Yeah, and the way that, you know, being the biggest by such a long shot as well, having built out personal Hotmail, uh, you, you know, and even just saying the word Hotmail, you immediately jump to kind of people's funny names that they gave themselves and stuff, you know. <laughs> and like, but that's so kind of like held in the mind. And then also being the first with, with Skype, it actually is the place that then every challenger is able just to run up against you, mm. use you as the shorthand, and then carve out their own little uh, niche to kind of um, to, to build. So, yeah, what, what, what an amazing challenge. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and then also kind of jumping out to Amazon, where you know I kind of keep banging on about this on the podcast about just how central to life Amazon and Amazon Prime is if you live in America, and to a slightly lesser degree if you live somewhere like uh, th throughout Europe or uh, the UK or Japan. But in a in a in North America. Holy heck, you know, Amazon couldn't be more central to life. What um, what were you doing with Alexa there? 
Yeah, so you know, I think just sort of stepping back on like what what is sort of Amazon's vision because it's quite different to Microsoft. You know, trying to hit the quarters, it's more about kind of looking out ten or twenty years and imagining this kind of future that you're trying to create. That's almost like science fictiony, and you know, for Amazon, that's that you should be able to buy absolutely anything that you want, and it should be very easy to order, right? You should be able to do it from uh, your PC, from your phone, or, you know, using voice through Alexa. And it should be able to be delivered, you know, to your home in kind of one to two hours. I mean, it sounds like magic when you think about it, right? Like when, when Amazon, you know, first started, it just was books and then it expanded to sort of general merchandise. But in terms of the being able to buy anything, you know, it's it's now doing things like you can, you know, order a cleaner, you know, through Amazon. Amazon's moving into selling you healthcare services. So what you see is them expanding from goods really, really into services to try and capture anything that you'd buy, you should be able to buy through Amazon. You know, we talked about the different ways that you should be able to do that and in Alexa shopping that was how do you use that new interface of voice so that you can just sort of speak your needs you wouldn't even have to pick up a phone or a pc just say the thing you want and it should appear and then from a delivery point of view you know I remember when delivering something in 24 hours in the US was you know considered to be the absolute kind of leading edge of e-commerce and now it's the it's the ante, right? It's 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 really about how do you get it there in kind of a one hour or two hour time period, and that's going to involve you know new types of technology like you know drone delivery, um, you know unmanned electric vehicles that are travelling around the street. You know these are the things that you know Amazon is sort of trying to you know put into place. Yeah, and the entire infrastructure of cities is changing. So. Any apartment buildings being built now have Amazon boxes yeah. so that, you yep. know, people can do easy drop-off uh, and, and secure drop-off. Uh, and even the way that delivery occurs for people, you know, if you, if you think about that, you know, that, that people are building their houses around it, that's that's pretty extraordinary. And, and then the idea of Alexa, when you started working on that project, it was probably still um, pretty kind of, you know, could go either way tech in a way. But now if you look at... Um, I've got um, 12-year-old kids and an 8-year-old kid. And they talk to voice assistants with so much ease and it's just so normal for them that it's just going to be this huge wave. Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge wave. But I think Amazon, one of the distinctive things about them is, again, that incredibly long-term focus because it's going to take time for those technologies to sort of reach the point of kind of usefulness and maturity where people can, you know, your 12-year-old grows up. Um, but for the, re- you know, for the rest of us, um, that, that will take a little bit of time. And I remember when I interviewed with Alexa, they asked me this kind of one interview question, which was, imagine you have a crazy billionaire who's giving you $20 billion and 20 years to reinvent elevators. So how would you go about doing that? Right, and and what what that was is sort of a, a very thinly described description of what we were doing in Alexa, because we really did have a crazy billionaire giving us you know twenty years and twenty billion dollars to build that business, and it's that sort of incredible long term focus and then willingness to say, hey, you know, it's going to take a while, but we're going to like continue iterating and iterating and iterating until until we get it right, and I think things like. 
you know, being able to order groceries through Alexa. That was one of the areas that I was really working on. And, you know, it was hard to get people out of grocery stores and to really buy groceries online because your grocery stores, you know, just down the road and it's pretty easy and people have their ingrained habits. But as you see what's happened, you know, in the in the wake of, you know, COVID, that whole area of online grocery um, ordering has just absolutely, you know, taken off and kind of reached its, you know, point of, you know, high adoption. So Yeah. And and like when you talk there about the twenty year mission and the behavior change that you're making in consumers, like I've been thinking about it a bit lately with voice. And my kids, if they want to know how to spell a word, they'll say Siri, I, um, I'm sure if I say it now, all of our phones will start talking to us. <laughs> hey, Siri, spell complicated. And then Siri just, you know, spells it back to them and then they go on with their work. And then I thought about like, as, as you know, an older adult, you feel like I don't want to expose by vocalising the fact that I'm ignorant. I don't want to kind of like talk out loud and show that I don't know how to spell a word. But it's so natural for them and the way that they interact with them. Um, it, 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 it's that much of a behaviour change that, that's taking place. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. But to go back to the elevator question, by the way, if you need to interview for for Amazon, I'll give you the answer to that one, which is, you know, reinventing elevators. The, the point is, in 20 years, will we even need them? It's the sort of recognition that in 20 years, probably elevators won't be relevant anymore. And it's like when you look that far ahead, you also have to assume that the technology we have today could be very, very different in the future. And I think in the US at the moment, there's a lot of, you know, again, a little science fiction-y, but, <clears throat> you know, maybe you won't need to even speak in the future. You know, to what extent will, you know, there be some sort of like brain implant where you can think your desire and, and have, have the answer. Yeah. And there's some sort of enhanced intelligence that will tell you how to, how to spell a bit better. And, and that's not science fiction at all. That, that's current science uh, yeah, that, yeah, you know, that's right. by thinking it uh, moves the muscles that go to uh, stimulate talk. And if you uh, jump in there and, and, and put that out. So, yeah, that, that, that's all happening <laughs> all happening now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, so having been involved in these projects and, you know, by involved, like leading up uh, very big roles mm. in some of these big, big companies, what, what brought you back to New Zealand? Well, I think it's always sort of a push and a pull. <clears throat> and on the push side, you know, looking at America, I, I think the the next twenty years of Americans America history may may not be kind of quite as, you know, glorious <laughs> as the last twenty years in a way. It's been a great twenty years. You know, America's this incredible country that uh, you know having kind of a, gr- a growth an economic growth engine but as as you as i looked around at what was happening in the US it seemed that that growth engine is, isn't giving equally you know to everyone in society and so you started to see a lot of polarization between you know very educated tech forward you know people living in urban environments and the types of jobs and salaries that you know you would command in that situation you know versus the gap with sort of everyone else who were either struggling to have any work or had to have a couple of jobs because they weren't getting kind of paid a lot instead of the growing kind of inequality between those two groups. And I think like looking at some of the big trends in technology around kind of AI and automation, you sort of imagine, you know, hey, America could get to a place where 20 or 30% of of people don't, don't have jobs anymore. And like, does the country have... The, the strength of institutions, the political system, the social safety net to really manage through the sorts of 
societal transitions that are going to come, you know, as the economy kind of restructures. And, you know, again, at the time, I think I was really worried about the effect of automation. And as the sort of COVID came, I think it showed some of those sort of underlying weaknesses, you know, really were there and sort of came forward a bit more suddenly than I was expecting. So part of it was just a sense of, I don't know that America has the answer to how we need to be in the future. And then on the on the pool side, back to New Zealand, if I think about that sort of way of life, you know, growing up in the 70s and all the things that, you know, I was kind of given and nurtured in, in New Zealand, wanting to see that protected. Because that notion of automation and job loss has potentially some big implications, you know, for small countries. Because if the automation platforms that are taking away the jobs are not here, and if the job loss is here, then, you know, you create this thing which I'd call the current account deficit of, of AI. And so how, how does New Zealand, you know, combat that and make sure that we're in a solid position, you know, moving into the future? It's really in my mind about creating a very, very strong kind of tech sector here so we can rebalance against that kind of deficit that I think is going to be created by kind of mass automation. And so I really wanted to sort of come back to New Zealand and, and contribute to help building, you know, that here because I really see the potential for that in New Zealand. And in that, that's in a role with Movac, one of the big investment fund, uh, kind of group of investment funds in, in New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about what Movac does and the fund that you're going to be involved in, because that's very much at that bigger end of town that could actually have uh, a big impact on kind of New Zealand Inc., yeah. yeah, and I think if you're going to grow a technology sector, one of the key foundations you need is a strong venture capital sector. And so Movac was kind of the original VC in New Zealand, you know, started in 1998 and has grown, you know, fund on fund across, you know, across the time as technology and the technology sector in New Zealand has grown. You know, and back in the day, it used to invest in kind of more early stage ventures. It was one of the kind of first inve- investors in Trade Me, as an example, you know, Power by Proxy, um, Aroa, that's just IPOing right now. And then over time, and the last fund has moved more into sort of investing more in kind of, you know, growth companies, companies a little bit more more mature, you know, in, in their business model. Pretty much we've moved around where we've seen there to be kind of a gap in, in the capital markets. And now we're launching Fund 5, which is really exciting. And what we're trying to do with Fund 5 is to say, look, rather than pick, are we going to be early stage? Are we going to be late stage? Let's do a Movax greatest hits, right? Let's have a fund where we can find entrepreneurs who are right at that early stage and be able to back them from the seed stage right through to kind of series A, B and C as, as their companies grow. And it's a bigger fund too. We're, we're kind of getting to that point of scale. So we'll have 150 to $200 million uh, you know, funds under management that I think we can really kind of stretch across that sort of broad continuum. And the other exciting thing I'm I'm kind of quite keen on is, you know, we can be the local investor for entrepreneurs and for companies, but clearly Kiwi entrepreneurs need to get offshore. So increasing that connectivity to the rest of the world is something that we have to do as a New Zealand-based VC. So we've announced a, a new board of advisors, some real 
superstars that are going to help kind of guide us and make sure that we take that broader point of view. So folk like David Teese, who's a Stanford Business School professor, you know, Randy Commissar, who's a, you know, Silicon Valley VC, ex-Kleiner Perkins, um, you know, Lisa Nelson, who's coming out of Microsoft um, M12 Venture Fund. So I sort of feel like we've got this incredible kind of backing of, you know, overseas supporters to help us and our founders, you know, be successful with Fund5. That must be really important at the moment because it sounds kind of um, silly when you come from such a small economy as New Zealand and money isn't um, extraordinarily available in uh, New Zealand. But, you know, really the problem with international money isn't finding money in an environment with near zero interest rates. It's finding that smart money, isn't it? Money that has kind of um, social capital Mm, and uh, networks behind it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, all Movac does is invest in New Zealand companies, right? That's the market that, that we play in. And so we're very high involvement, high commitment investors. When we sort of come in, pretty much you're going to have us on your board. We're going to get, you know, super involved in, in helping you be successful and leveraging, you know, those those networks to help, help companies grow. And I think there is a lot of kind of US capital, you know, some of it's even coming down in, into this market. But, you know, mostly if a US VC is cutting you a sort of a two or three or four million dollar check, like they're throwing change at you, right? They'll give it to you and then say, hey, good luck, you know, come back to us if, if you find success. And I think I'd contrast that with, you know, our approach, which is to say, hey, we're in there, we're going to roll our sleeves up and like, let's let's do this together. So that's that's what it, it excites me about it, particularly having come out of big companies and having that operating experience, because I really want to kind of bring it and apply it to, you know, help some of the Kiwi founders. Mm. And you've got directorship uh, directorships happening at the moment as well that are a couple of like different ends of the spectrum of some local companies that are pushing into the states. On one side of things, PushPay, which mm-hmm. uh, you know for anyone who isn't aware of it, is an absolutely enormous company uh, by New Zealand standards, selling church management and donation. Uh, services to to mega churches across uh, the US and then at the other end tell tell me about the the, the small uh, human assistance uh, company oh uh, yeah U- unique.com yeah yeah so um, basically unique um, are, are providing a platform that enables anybody to go and create a digital human. Right, so you know, you know what a chatbot looks like. You can kind of, you know, communicate with it, but it's 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 just text, right? It's no personality around it. And we've seen a lot of kind of big companies as they try and remove cost out of their business, remove the humans from their customer experience, and replace them with things like very vanilla, very humanless. Um, chatbots. And so what Unique is trying to do is say, hey, maybe there's some middle ground there that we can keep some of the humanity inside the customer experience. And so we've built a platform that enables you to to, ta- to create your own digital human and then have them be the interface through to your to your customers in some circumstances. So there's a, there's a face that's looking at you. There's, you know, an emo- some emotion that you can kind of communicate and, you know, you can make your brand come to life through that experience in a way that's really Really kind of unique to your own company. And both of those are really interesting examples of companies that you wouldn't necessarily go, well, New Zealand is going to be the place that, you know, the biggest megachurch kind of um, pay- payment processing uh, service hails from, uh, you, you know, as, as we have a very different culture around um, church going and, and, and tithing and the like here in the main, uh, or, or at least a, a far less um, uh, 
co- common and obvious culture around it, uh, prominent culture, and then also with things like kind of specialist AI around making kind of human avatars and the like. Mm. Um, so, so what what are the things that you look for, and and what are the things that hum- that, that, that you know that we can specialize here in and own, and then you know credibly take overseas. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that since I came home. Like, what are the things that we can kind of be uniquely good at in New Zealand? And there's probably like four themes that I that I can see. The, and the first one is, you know, New Zealanders are just sort of very empathetic people. They generally do think a lot about kind of customers and a, a focus on customers. And so in places where um, there's a specialist community, you might think about faith, you know, faith uh, organisations as being a specialist community, where the, the TAM is not tens of billions, but maybe is like one or two billion, right? So it's it's a it's a type of market where if it were really large, there'd be a whole bunch of American money wrapped around going after it and making it successful. But it's just at that size where somehow a New Zealander can get into that vertical and really understand it deeply such that they can build a product that better meets that that community's needs. And I, c- I kind of call it vertical SaaS, but I think I've seen many cases of success where we're great at that. I think Pushpay is one example. You know, another one that Movex just invested in is called, you know, Track Plus, um, that basically does communication and monitoring solutions for um, firefighters and first responders. You know, again, a very, very specific vertical. And like, you know what? We're the best in the world at it. So that idea of taking some very specialist but large enough community and being able to kind of wrap solutions around them because we're empathetic. I think that's kind of theme number one. Um, like a, a big enough problem, but also a small enough problem. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be just just right. You know, mama bear, mama a gold, bear. Gold yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the second one is, um, you know, um, enterprise, and enterprise software are actually pretty good at. And I think that's because New Zealand's very good at thinking across boundaries and, and, and having, you know, integrative thinking, if you like. In America, things get so big that you become this little kind of cog in the wheel and it's easy to lose sense of sort of the big picture. But the sort of scope and scale of our economy, we can see across end-to-end uh, problems quite well. And so it's like seeing end-to-end problems and then with that Kiwi practicality saying, how do I go and kind of like simplify that and make it easy? And then, you know, enterprise selling isn't a fast cycle thing. You have long sales cycles. It's very relationship focused. It's about building trust. And I think we actually excel in that sort of, um, you know, selling situation. Um, I think the third one would be you know anything that's SMB, like we're you know we're good at, and so you'd look at your zeros, your vans, your unleashed, because New Zealand is a nation of SMB businesses. We we don't tend to excel in consumer businesses. We don't have enough of them, but SMB we have a ton of SMB businesses, and because New Zealand has smaller businesses, we always need to find ways to make doing business easier. So I'd say we're we're really quite good at SMB, and then I think the fourth one would be there's a lot of good IP you know, here in New Zealand. So ideas that are coming out of universities, you know, and then, you know, getting commercialised. You know, we're good at rocket ships. You know, we're good at um, 
robotics, you know, digital humans, the whole unique thing is part of, you know, this theme because, you know, there's some research groups at the university, you know, such that, you know, um, we've got a couple of companies, Soul Machines and Unique.com, that both do digital humans and that's part of that research that's spun out of the university. You know, Engender is another example. Power by Proxy was spun out of the university. And so to me, push pays in that first bucket and I'd say Unique is probably in, in that fourth bucket. That's so cool. And and that idea also of us being a nation of um, SMBs, uh, from, from my experience in the space, I think one of the reasons New Zealand does well there is that unlike in bigger markets, like if you are a small business owner in New Zealand or Australia, you feel all the pain because you yeah. do a bit of the payroll and you do a bit of the accounting and you do a bit of, you know, the customer service and a bit of the, you know, customer support. Like you, you touch everything. While in bigger markets, if you have enough scale, you have a bookkeeper and you have an accountant and you have a customer service boss and you have a retail manager. And so you just kind of only feel your little bit of organising other people, but you don't get the pain yourself. And so that idea of actually solving, you know, feeling the pain and removing it rather than just hiring someone because you can afford to is is probably our... um, yeah, yeah, what sets us apart. And, and I think that's right. I think there's a theme in there about capital efficiency, right? We do a lot with very small amounts of resources. And so then solutions that empower that, you know, uh, I think we're particularly, you know, great, you know, at, at creating. And then I think the businesses that we build too, like that's what we're known for offshore, how much growth and product we can build with pretty small teams is quite unparalleled, you know, compared to what you see in American, you know, startups. And I think now as we sort of hit more recessionary times, that becomes a real advantage for New Zealand tech businesses because, you know, it may be a bit tougher to get capital. So having a set of entrepreneurs that know how to do a lot with a little actually puts us in a relative place of advantage. Yeah, and even with developers here but selling over there, which is a huge advantage, we think, being able to keep working and uh, be a lot more efficient financially as well. Yeah. Hey, so how do people get involved? Like, you know, you, you were saying just before, we've just got a couple of other questions, but one before we get there. How do people get involved with Movac? Because you said that with a fund like this, you're writing 250K checks, which uh, – you know, for people precede at the absolute kind of beginning of their idea, if the idea is big enough and the the, the team look good enough, but then you go right up through yeah, to five million, to, 10 million to, yeah. to placements and mature yeah. companies to, to kind of you know supercharge what they're up to. And are you seeing people across the whole spectrum? Like, you know, what kind of what 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 do you as a general partner on a fund like mm. this like are you looking for heaps of meetings or just meetings in a certain um, sector or you know what are you mm. looking for? Well, first of all, I'd say. In a, in a way, it's not changing our meetings because our strategy here is always to, to be very relationship-focused. So in the past, even though Movac was investing later stage, we always met with earlier stage companies. Our, our approach was how do we grow the relationship you know, starting early on. So a lot of the deal flow that we looked at We'd say, hey, that's nice, you know, stay in touch, you know, let's see you in two or three years. And so this new strategy, it's the same set of meetings and the same set of people. But now instead of saying, see you later, you know, when, when you hit our, our metrics uh, and our criteria, we're now able to actually do something in that sort of earlier phase. So I think we see it somewhat as a sort of a, a continuation. Um, in terms of, you know, reaching out to us, you know, you can um, – 
you know, we, we hold office hours very often at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Um, you can reach out to us, um, you know, through our website. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to get the email addresses of any kind of Movac GP. And, you know, we're definitely super happy to, to take, take those meetings and just hear about what's happening out there. And the questions that we like to ask everyone, um, you know, what advice do you have for people who, who want to, I guess in the first instance, work for these great companies? You know, like uh, it can seem a long way away to be at, at the front of a, a, this technology from here. But yeah, what advice would you have for people who want to be part of the action there? Well, I mean, maybe it's the, it's the opposite of, of uh, what I've done, which is I'd sort of start by saying, you know, if you think about your, your dreams – um, and what you want to do, like maybe you only have one life. And so rather than say, hey, join someone else's dream in some overseas company, you know, having your own dreams. And, and then secondly, you know, even though I went off offshore and, and had this kind of career, I sort of think New Zealand's at a place now where maybe you don't need to go offshore to have big dreams. Maybe you don't need to work for a big company to have big dreams, right? It's a special time right now in New Zealand in terms of where our tech industry is, where the funding to back that is, tons of kind of offshore people coming home and, you know, looking for interesting, you know, work to do. And so I would sort of say, hey, you know, consider staying here and doing it here. And and I think that the world is kind of looking a little bit to New Zealand right now, right? Like that we, we, we've done so well at managing ourselves through some of the recent crises that the rest of the world maybe doesn't have the answers. You know, maybe we have an opportunity to find the answers here and to build the big businesses and the big dreams, you know, right here in New Zealand. And having had quite a bit of success in quite a few different spots, what will success be for you? What, what keeps you kind of going? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's what type of world are we building, you know, for my children. And, you know, if I think about that world, uh, I, I think... Be, having that combination of growing rich riches as well as growing kinder. You know, I think in, in America, they're great at the first one. <laughs> and I think in New Zealand, they're great at the second one. But to be in a country where my kids can grow up, where there's a sense of kind of growing wealth for our country, as well as keeping that kind of kindness and growing more kindness – you know, I think if there's any place in the world that can kind of get there and unite those two things, I think it would it would be New Zealand. Ah, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks. for coming. Thanks, Simon. That's uh, Lavina McMurchie, uh, who's back in New Zealand uh, working on the Movac Fund 5. Can't wait to see what you make happen there. Thanks. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.